Amen. Good morning, brothers and sisters. I'm glad you're here today for fall launch. We'll be sharing more about our missional communities uh, during announcements, and we hope everyone that's here will stick around for lunch afterwards in the fellowship hall immediately following service. Uh, in addition, you might have heard if you're on our email list that we're starting today um, a three-month sermon series on the book of Proverbs. Now, uh, since we began as a church a few years ago, we've, um, we've basically had three major sermon series with some breaks in between. So we did a series on um, the Gospel of Luke. Uh, then we did a summer series on the book of Jonah. And then last year, we studied the book of Acts. And now we come to this very fascinating, very ancient piece of wisdom literature that you'll find smack dab in the middle of your Bible, the book of Proverbs. Now, Proverbs has always been one of the most popular Old Testament books for Christians. For example, when, Gideon, when the Gideons uh, published their New Testaments to hand out in airports and stuff like that and to you know, put, in, uh, put in the drawers of hotel rooms, um, they usually include just two books from the Old Testament. Do you know what those are? Have you ever seen those? Psalms and Proverbs. That's right. So why is this the case? Why has Proverbs been so popular for Christians to read? Well, I think that one of the reasons is that it conveniently has 31 chapters. And so if you wanted to read a chapter of Scripture a day for a month, Proverbs is a good place to start. I'm sure some of you guys have done that. And if you've never done that, what a blessing it is. But the main reason why Proverbs is so popular, I think, is because it's so eminently practical. It's divinely inspired wisdom for practical life. All of Scripture is inspired by God. We believe that firmly here at Incarnation. And all Scripture is important in its own way. But if we're honest, oftentimes when we read the Bible, much of it appears a little too lofty or a little too remote or too obscure sometimes to connect to our everyday life. Sometimes we read Scripture and we're like, I don't know what's going on here, right? But Proverbs meets us right where we are. One scholar put it this way, he said, One might read the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, and see only a faint shadow of himself there. Or the historical books may overwhelm him with facts and events. The prophets, by some mere chance, may pass him by with their deep convictions and concerns about their own societies and world. But the poetical books, like Psalms and Proverbs, find him right where he is. We cannot escape, because this is where we live. So rather than the voice of a prophet or a historian or a zealous apostle, in the book of Proverbs, the voice we encounter sounds more like a wise or holy parent. You know what I'm saying? In fact, um, in the first few verses, we learn that one of the main purposes of Proverbs is to instruct youth with wisdom for life in God's world. So Benjamin, this, this book was written for guys like you, man, to instruct you with wisdom in life. Hey, Dante. Pay attention, man. This book was written for guys like you, all right? It says in Proverbs 1, verses 8 and 9, Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching. For they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. Now let's turn there together to Proverbs chapter 1. It can be found smack dab in the middle of your pew Bible on page 527. 
And today we're going to do three things. We're going to look at the introduction to Proverbs here in the first verses of chapter 1. Then I want to talk a bit about how a proverb works and how um, this part of God's Word is different than commandments. It's different than prophecy or promises. And finally, I want to wrestle with one of the central themes of the book, which is the fear of the Lord. And I know this sounds like a scary phrase, but we'll get into why it's so important. Okay, so look down with me at Proverbs chapter 1, verse 1. It begins, the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. So we see that in terms of authorship, Solomon is in view from the beginning. This shouldn't be surprising because the scriptures describe Solomon, the son of David, as the wisest man in the ancient world. When he began his reign in 1 Kings 3, he, asked, he was asked by God, Hey, Dante, come here, buddy. When he began his reign in 1 Kings 3, he's asked by God, What shall I give you? And Solomon famously replies by asking for wisdom to gov govern the people well, which pleased the Lord greatly. And the Lord makes good on Solomon's request. In 1 Kings 4, he goes on to describe him as a sort of sage and poet and scientist all combined into one. It says he spoke 3,000 proverbs. He wrote 1,005 songs and collected all sorts of knowledge about plants and animals. However, it would be inaccurate to say that Proverbs was written entirely by Solomon because the book contains several collections of sayings that are directly ascribed to other authors, authors such as King Lemuel and a man named Agur, as well as some anonymous authors. So in terms of authorship, we might say that Proverbs is more of an anthology that's developed over time with various contributors, although it seems to have gotten its start in the royal courts of Solomon. Now, we were talking a little bit of why is Solomon's, why is Proverbs so popular? Why have so many people like to read it? Why study Proverbs? There are actually several reasons given right up front in the text itself. Verses 2 through 4, if you look down at them, talk about the purpose of Proverbs. It says, to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. So we see right off the bat the purpose of Proverbs is to instill wisdom, understanding, wise dealing, prudence, and it promises that these things can be attained even from the simple, even from the young. The Hebrew word for wisdom is chokhmah. Can you guys say that? Chokhmah. I checked with Sarah yesterday to make sure I was pronouncing that correctly. <laughs> this is a rich and multifaceted word. It can refer to moral wisdom, things like righteousness, justice, and equity, as it talks about in verse 3, and also just overall good sense. But it also can carry with it a sense of technical skill. So the artist who are building the tabernacle in Exodus chapter 31 are said to possess chokmah. Now wisdom, it's not so much a matter of IQ. I mean, there are many intelligent people in the world who are exceedingly unwise, and many among the unlearned who are pillars of wisdom. As Tremper Longman put it in his little book, How to Read Proverbs, he says, Wisdom is the skill of living. It is a practical knowledge that helps one to know how to act and how to speak in different situations. 
Okay, so let me show you a little bit about how a uh, proverb works. All right, flip forward with me to Proverbs 26, verses 4 and 5. It's important for us to understand uh, from the outset that Proverbs is not the same as a law. A proverb is not like the Ten Commandments. And it's not a prophecy, divine speech to God's people. It doesn't work in that same way. And it's not like the many promises of God, like that he'll never leave or forsake his people, which we can cling to regardless of outward circumstance, right? That's how a promise works. A proverb is a little different. Let me show you what I mean. Proverbs 26.4 says, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. That sounds like good advice, right? Uh, But now look at the very next verse. It says, Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. So which is it? Should we answer a fool according to his folly? Or should we not? Now if we approach the book of Proverbs in this two-dimensional way, as if it was operating according to the same rules as the law of Moses... We might throw up our hands in despair and say, it's a contradiction. How could we possibly follow a command that says both to do and not to do something? But that's not the way to approach Proverbs. These are not intended to be universal maxims or timeless promises. They are words of wisdom. As Longman puts it, a wise person knows the right time and the right situation for the right proverb. Now, when it comes to Proverbs 26, 4, and 5, anyone who has lived a bit of life and paid attention knows that there are times when, to put it bluntly, people are speaking out of their rears. And to try to argue with them only brings us down to their level. Amen? Amen. On the other hand, there are times when someone is speaking foolishly and they need a sharp word of correction to humble them, lest they be wise in their own eyes. When is the right time for the one and not the other? It's the wise person. It's the wise person who increasingly knows the difference. Okay, let's try another one because another common criticism of Proverbs is that it's overly optimistic. For example, Proverbs 10.4 says, A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. In other words, if you want to make more money... The first place to begin is by working harder. Right? That's what it says. Now, these kinds of proverbs can come off as offensive to modern ears because they don't seem like they take into account other factors like oppression and access to education. But these realities were not unknown to the authors of Proverbs. Just a few chapters later in Proverbs 13, verse 23, it says, The fallow ground of the poor would yield much food, but it is swept away through injustice. You see that? How's that for nuance? It seems to be saying almost the exact opposite of Proverbs 10.4, but it's easy to see how they're both true in their own way, right? I mean, I can tell you right now that if you work hard, you put in 40 or 50 hours a week, respect your employer, pay attention to the quality of your service and the quality of your product, Over the long haul, things will likely go well for you economically. I put my money on that. On the other hand, it's also true to say that some of the most promising youth in America and around the world today are having their opportunities swept away through injustice. 
Both of these statements are true. And the fact that we are reluctant to admit that in our current political milieu just means that the Bible is more wise and nuanced and holistic than our news talk radio shows. Amen? Amen. While it's true that Proverbs tends to focus on the general rule rather than the exception, it also offers self-correctives against itself, against over an overly black and white view of reality. But even so, if you go away from Proverbs, feeling like you need a few more exceptions to the rule, I point you to two other books in Scripture, also in the wisdom literature, Ecclesiastes and Job. So we read Proverbs not just in light of the rest of Proverbs and understand, oh, wow, there's some self-correction in there. But even in the overall canon of Scripture, we see that there's different emphases. In Ecclesiastes and Job, the point of those books is to really kind of bring forth the exception to the rules. But right now, we're looking at Proverbs. And Proverbs is going to show us the general pattern of wisdom for living in God's world. Okay, so we've introduced the book of Proverbs. We looked a bit, about, a, a, a bit at how a proverb works. And now thirdly, I want to discuss one of the most important themes in the book of Proverbs, the fear of the Lord. So look down with me at chapter 1, verse 7. Many scholars refer to this as the motto of the entire book. It's a sort of banner that hangs over everything else that we see in the book of Proverbs. It says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So right here from the beginning, Proverbs says that there's an intimate connection between wisdom on the one hand and our relationship to God on the other. In fact, they're dependent upon each other because the fear of the Lord, literally the fear of Yahweh, is the beginning, in Hebrew, the foundation or the source of knowledge. As one scholar put it, wisdom begins not by accumulating facts, but by having a relationship with God. I wonder if that makes sense to us today. This connection between knowing God in particular, knowing Yahweh, and having true wisdom. Or have we severed these two things and said they don't really, they're not really in need of one another. There's no real connection. Recently, uh, a newspaper in Lon- London put out... Um, this, this challenge for its readers that said, um, if we were to rewrite the Ten Commandments, what would they be for the 21st century? And they collected people's feedback and they saw where there was uh, you know, the most synergy and they released the statement and they actually came up with a list of 20. <laughs> now the interesting thing is that most of the original Ten Commandments showed up on the list. Don't lie, don't steal, honor your parents. They all showed up on the list, but there were four omissions. Can anyone guess what they were? People say murder, adultery. (laughs) You might think that. It's the first four. It was the first four. None of those are the ones that showed up on the list. And the first four of the Ten Commandments all have to do with our relationship with God, with the way that we relate to God. Clearly, there are many today who no longer see a link between wisdom and the fear of the Lord. So what is the link? And what does this mysterious phrase, the fear of the Lord, mean? What kind of fear is it talking about? Surely God doesn't mean for us to go about our lives trembling and quaking with fear. Surely God doesn't want us to do what's right only because we're afraid of being punished. For the scriptures make it clear that love is the highest reason. 
Jesus said, if you love me, you'll do what I command. And he says the greatest commandment is to love God and to love your neighbor. Love is the highest, highest ethic in the Bible. God is love. 1 John 4.18 says, There is no fear in love, but for perfect fear casts... Excuse me. Start over. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So there's something about this idea, the fear of the Lord, that also permeates the pages of Scripture. And even Jesus himself talks about the wisdom of this idea in our gospel reading today. Remember, he was warning the hypocrites, warning the religious hypocrites, you're fearing the wrong thing, dudes. You're fearing people. You want to look good in front of people. But your hidden lives are in shambles because you don't have a proper fear of the Lord. In fact, I think if we think about it deeply, we'll find that fear of the Lord is intimately connected with the love of God, with his love for us. One of the first memories I have from my childhood is of me running away from home. I think I was actually two years old. I still have flashes of memory from this. Not even three yet. And I don't actually think there was a reason why I ran away. I was just resolute in my little two-year-old heart. And I faintly remember reaching for the front door. And I remember walking down the street in my neighborhood and this little dog barking at me. And I remember this old lady finding me. And I, I was a few blocks away from home by that point. And I remember my grandfather pulling up in his car. And when he opened the door, he was so mad. And he picked me up and he spanked me. And then he weeped and he hugged me. And I remember I was very confused. <laughs> and uh, so later on, I asked my mom, why did grandpa spank me and then hug and kiss me? And my mom said, well, he gave you a hug and kiss because he loves you. And he spanked you because he never wants you to run away again. Now, I don't want to read too much theology into my personal life. <laughs> but I can tell you two things about my childhood from that day forward. One, I never questioned whether my grandfather loved me. And two, I never tried to run away from home again. There's something about that memory that helps me to understand the fear and the love of the Lord and how they relate to one another in the scriptures. There's this healthy kind of fear Something that God wants us all to have that reminds us who he is, of his loving authority and pure intentions for us and for everything that he has made. And it actually protects us. That fear of the Lord protects us. And then there's another kind of fear which has to do with the punishment of our separation from him, which God desires to take away from us through Jesus Christ. Think about the fall of man in Genesis chapter 3 about Adam and Eve in the garden, when Satan tempted them to eat the forbidden fruit, what if they would have just feared the Lord? Right? What if they would have properly remembered that in his wisdom and by his loving power, he created all things by his words? That this serpent had no right to question God's authority. That he was an imposter. I think there's a sense that this kind of fear would have been appropriate even in paradise. 
And it would have been, it will be appropriate, I think, even in eternity, even in today, even as Isaiah saw the heavenly throne room and the six-winged seraphs, and they're using two of their wings to cover their eyes because they're afraid. Because God is awesome. It's not just a lack of love that caused man to fall, but a lack of appropriate fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of knowledge. A knowledge far sweeter than the forbidden tree promised to them. Because they lack this basic fear, this reverence for their creator that's appropriate to all creatures, their sin gave birth to a second kind of fear. And they hid from God, remember? Genesis 3.8 and following says, And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of God among the trees of the garden. The Lord doesn't like this. He doesn't like this new state of affairs. The Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. My friends, the entire rest of the Bible is the story of God seeking to render null and void that kind of fear. The kind of fear that would cause us to hide from Him. The kind of fear that would separate us from the presence of a holy God. God's desire is to banish that kind of fear through Jesus Christ. To bring us back into His holy presence forever. That's the offer to all of us through the cross. That's why perfect love casts out fear. I just want to wrap up and I just want to issue a couple of challenges for us. One is, Proverbs has 31 chapters. And September has 30 days. <laughs> but I, I propose that we don't wait till October, till one of those 31 days, month, days months. I, I, I think we just, just use September and then if you need the extra day, you know, at the beginning of October, you can use it or you squeak in another chapter somewhere where along the way. You can just have an overachieving day, all right? But I want to propose that we all dive into the book of Proverbs during the month of September because I think that will make the preaching, the sermon series, everything more rich. And I'm just excited for you guys to get some of the kind of divine wisdom that, that the book of Proverbs just drips with, guys. And second, I want us to just consider this idea of the fear of the Lord and ask, do we have this proper fear of God that's spoken of all throughout the pages of Scripture? It's not talking about terror, but about an appropriate reverence. Basically, it, remains, it means remembering God is king, and we're not. God is at the center and we're not. It's to acknowledge our dependence upon Him as our Creator and to properly show humility before His kingly authority. To fear the Lord, this is going to be tough for us, means that we, get to, we don't get to make up our own definitions of what's good and bad. Of what's wise and unwise behavior. We don't get to create those things. Those things were woven into the fabric of creation and they flow from God's nature. Do we have a proper fear of the Lord? Or are there things where we say, I don't care what the Bible says about this, I'm going to do that. Because that's what Adam and Eve did, and it didn't work out very well. Do we have the proper fear of the Lord, which Mary showed 
when she said, Here am I, Lord, your servant. Let it be unto me according to your word. Let it be unto me according to your word, not according to my fanciful ideas, not according to what's culturally popular today that's not going to be culturally popular 300 years from now, but according to your firm word. I call you, as you're reading through the book of Proverbs throughout the month of September, to re-examine whether you've got caught up in some kind of political narrative, in some kind of worldly narrative that's contrary to the word of God, and humbly to say, God, I want your word. Let it be unto me according to your word. Amen? Amen.